Hi, I'm Laura Brady, CEO of Concierge Auctions. And hi, I'm Chad Roffers, Chairman of Concierge Auctions. And this is Block Talk. Hi, I'm Crystal Abbey, Chief Marketing Officer of Concierge Auctions, and I'd like to welcome you to Block Talk, a web podcast series covering all things luxury real estate on and off the auction block. In this episode, we'll be having a virtual fireside chat with our chairman, Chad Roffers, and European advisor, Charlie Smith, on the top five real estate market predictions. And we'll follow today's discussion with an open mic Q&A. Feel free to submit your questions at any time, and our team will compile all as we go, and we'll answer as many as we can live towards the end of today's discussion. So without further ado, Chad and Charlie, I'll turn the mic over to you. Perfect. Thanks so much, Crystal. Charlie, I wish we were in a cozy pub in London versus this. <laughs> It'll be with us soon, for sure, but it's great to have the opportunity to talk and for people to dial in as well. There's a sort of peak webinar association going on at the moment, so it's fantastic that anybody wants to join and listen to us have a chat. Yeah, it's fun, although it's morning here, but maybe I'll, I will go pour myself a, a ale just to... As, as I always say to you, Chad, I'm a few hours closer to a martini than you are because it's four o'clock here. <laughs> we'll, we'll do that together one day. All right. I'm, I'm looking forward to it as usual. Charlie and I have known each other for closer to 20 years than not. So going back to our days at Sotheby's and and um, great friend and fantastic leader for us for all things that we do in the in the European and just really Middle East and Asia markets. Charlie has a wealth of experience and probably more than anybody in the world that I know of, you know, truly has a, a global purview on what's happening in the luxury markets around the globe real time. So really thankful to have Charlie on our team at Concierge, but also for everybody on today's uh, webinar podcast to take advantage of, of his insights. So with that said, Charlie, you know, what do you think about the market? We'd said when we'd had a discussion before, and of course we don't have a a crystal ball and you know i wonder how many times that's been said in webinars these past weeks i'll stand by what i say and we do have some uh, historical evidence to back up my thinking about where we're going but and we can look at specific markets in detail in time that's fine and if people have got questions i you know listen to what people have to say and we can venture our opinion but what i really wanted to talk about a little bit more is just seeing perhaps some predictions of how things are going to be. And to me, I think the first one that I'm going to venture out there, which I think we will see change, is there's going to be a greater demand for good quality advice. Remember, on certain times, getting the right advice, um, particularly when you deal with such a high-valued asset, is becoming even more important. And that race to the bottom on fees in any professional capacity, which seemed to be going on prior to the pandemic, is not always conducive to really delivering the right result, especially in uncertain times. You know, it could very well be a false economy. And then to, to talk about that, let's talk actually in sort of terms of real estate, broker fees, and I know how they vary enormously around the world, right? I know fees of, you know, some places in Italy, fees are 10% in London, now, you could probably get a real estate broker to, 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 to do you a sale and they would charge in the per mills, not even in the per cents. So there's a huge difference. But I think, you know, with what's going to come out the back of this, I think it's that really trying to find that agent that goes that extra mile. And I think people will be prepared to pay for it. Do you remember that? Term? I'm sure we talked about this before, Chad, but do you remember that book, Free Economics? Of course. Remember, there's a great chapter in it. And I think it was something like, why do real estate brokers get 10% more for their own homes when they sell them than they do on their clients' homes? And the premise of that was really, if you're only talking, let's say, a 3% fee on the Delta, there's no real motivation. But if it's 100% yours, then they try a bit harder, right? You know, it sort of makes complete sense. But if it were me, I would want my broker to eke out the best possible buyer, and I'll happily pay for that service. And I don't think I'm alone with that. Right. I think that's going to be happening with people. Don't you think that there is going to be you know, the value in uncertain times of good quality advice as opposed to let's think of anything else that you could say. Right. You know, another way of looking at it is, you know, I want to have a wisdom tooth removed or something like that. You know, I'm not going to choose the guy who's going to do that on the basis of somebody telling me, hey, you know, that guy's the cheapest. <laughs> you know, I want the guy who's going to be the best. So I think the the greater demand for good quality advice 
I think it's going to be something that should come to the fore. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's an interesting, interesting notion. And, and ironically, I look back to, you know, 08, 09, where, you know, kind of lead, going into that, there was similar kind of change and disruption going on in real estate. Um, and I think you're right. I mean, there's a, a flight to quality in, in times like this. And I think that there's going to be, you know, what I would characterize is there are going to be more unique situations and unique situations could be a buyer or financials or buyer or seller's financial situation. A unique situation could be um, a buyer um, not being able to do a walkthrough prior to closing, a lender that behind schedule and causing a delay. And I think it's going to take somebody who's experienced and savvy to be able to navigate you know, those waters. And I think that's as much as we know, you know, getting a property under contract is great, but getting it to the closing is a whole other animal and both are difficult. We'll come on to the specifics of the market, I'm sure, as we chat. But uh, it's that it's it's just a whole premise of put it another way. We've seen a big rise. It's become a huge force, but we've seen a big rise in the UK. The UK market's about a million trades a year, something like that. That's the size of the market. The average price point's about three hundred thousand pounds. About the same in dollars, I think, at the moment. So it, it, you know, it's a fairly sized market, and and there's been a huge change really over the last couple of years with these. Um, uh, cut price brokerages, you know, where you just come and you pay an upfront fee and, and they deliver you, really all they're delivering you is access to the property portals, right? Our equivalent of Trulia and Zillow's, et cetera, et cetera. There's no other advice or help with that. You know, they, they, they use automation to come up with valuations. How difficult is that? And then, and then you get what you pay for, right? So yeah. I just, you know, the slowing down and the growth of those cut price real estate brokerages and the demand for quality service. I don't think I'm alone in that. You know, I think people will really want and see the value of, of good advice. And I think there's lots of excellent brokers. I mean, you know, lucky enough with you guys and other walks of life to meet real estate brokers in different markets all over the world. Some fantastic, very, very knowledgeable brokers out there. And I think it would be good that those people are sought out and their fees are, are respected. You know, one interesting trend in the in, in certainly North in, in North America has been you know the rise of the eye buyer. You know, so whether it was Zillow Instant Offers, Open Door, OfferPad, and in pre-pandemic, the percentage, um, and this is you know less in the luxury market. In fact, the, you know concierge is the closest thing to what an iBuyer delivers in the luxury market. But in kind of the regular market, iBuyer transactions were up to 12 percent of mm -hmm. transaction volume. And you know what I know about the iBuyer process is you know certainly it's not the highest possible price for a home. It's not particularly it's not light on fees. There's substantial fees involved. And but what I think that's telling you is the consumer is happy to pay for a result that they want. In that case, with the iBuyer was you know the C word convenience. People wanted convenience. They wanted you know certainty and predictability. And they're willing to pay for it. And I think that's a great point. And I think that's an example, certainly, of, of innovation that was focused on really solving what the consumer the consumer wanted. Versus, yeah. Yeah. And we're in the business of dealing with luxury real estate. And I think, you know, they are valuable, important assets wherever you sit. Right. Obviously, you had a great talk that last week with uh, the guy that started WealthX. He made some very funny comments. I thought about, you know, the billionaire arguing over a $10,000 fee. You know, I do appreciate get all of that. But but. You know, people will want to have the whatever it is, whatever the asset is, you know, they'll value that asset. It's going to be an expensive, you know, part of their portfolio. For most people, it's the most important valuable asset they own. So, and, and you and I have done it, right? We could we could stand in the middle of London and in two quid in a cab ride, right, in any direction, we could go and look at real estate that's a thousand pounds a square foot up to in excess of five thousand pounds a square foot. You know, in fact, forget the cab ride. We could just walk there in five minutes, right? Standing in the middle of London. That's how diverse it could be. So how can you get those sort of systems going? I don't know. I just think in certain markets and everything else, I just think with this end of the pandemic, I just think we'll see that sort of race to the bottom on fees and advice will come to a halt. Great point. So let's go. Let's tackle the big question. What's going to happen with prices coming out of this? 
And I think you're going to see what has been the trend over the last sort of couple of years, which I think is going to change, is the rise in the acquisition of things, right? principally real estate, because it's one that most people understand, as opposed to the recent trend of experiences. And the reason I say that is we've seen real estate markets perform well in the face of adversity before. Not all markets, I appreciate. But on the backdrop of most EMEA markets being soft prior to the pandemic, anyway, there's a few honourable exceptions. Milan was a very hot market. Paris was 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 really picking up. Lisbon is a fantastic city and, and, and not very big, so the prices were kind of holding up. But most of the markets, London included, the markets were, were soft. So I suspect we might see demand for space and perhaps also the reversal of the of the of the migration that we were seeing towards cities and which which was certainly europe-wide probably worldwide right people didn't want big country houses they wanted to go into the cities you know i was very envious of a a, a friend who bought a fantastic apartment in central london a, a, a couple of years ago i'm slightly out in the countryside you know fantastic has everything on his doorstep all of the restaurants and facilities and culture and theater and everything that you want all on his doorstep and of course for the past six weeks it's it's been pointless right i mean of course it's going to change i do understand that but but the realization i think people might be looking more for a bit more space so it's the acquisition of things as i say principally real estate that might just you know make that difference i was with a um meeting in europe with a a large luxury goods business a few months ago. Um, it's incredible business. They have over 170 luxury brands. It's extraordinary. And they told me that their goods business grows at single percentage points per annum. But their experiences business, this was, I say a few months ago, it's probably the end of last year. So before all of where we are today with the pandemic. But their experiences business was growing at double digits. So they were looking to develop more hotels. But I just wonder whether with everything that's going on, the realisation of how life is and people changing their perceptions and things, whether that might just balance itself back out a bit. And and, and if you're going to get demand for real sort of tangible assets such as real estate, then to come on the back of this, where do we think and why do we think that prices are going to do what they're going to do? Sure, there is going to be immediate default reaction, dealing with it all the time, that the markets, and you read it in the press and everything else, the markets are going to drop up 20%, 30%, the world economy is going to drink, et cetera, et cetera. I remember in September 2008, and I promise you, it was the very day that Lehman Brothers collapsed. So that news came to London at about lunchtime that Lehman Brothers has collapsed, gone into chapter 11. And it was on that day that Sotheby's had a huge sale that evening of work by Damien Hurst. There's facsimiles of all his work, you know, animals in formaldehyde, there's bin pictures of medicine cabinets and everything else. But but it's too late to call the sale off, right? It was that evening. It was in four hours, five hours time. But everyone was absolutely terrified, not surprisingly, about what might happen. But in the end, the sale went absolutely gangbuster. I mean, it was an incredibly good sale. And, and the realisation was that people wanted to own lovely things not strange derivative investment products, right? And again, for the real estate business that I was running at the time, I started this business, 2000, the back end of 2008 and 2009 was a very, very good time. And the real estate market performed very well in the face of adversity. So do we think it's going to do anything different this time? Well, you know, I say it's uh, evidence would support that that was the same. I think it was the same in New York in 2001 and London in 2007 when the terrorist atrocities. So, you know, it would be difficult to say, very easy to say the market's going to be absolutely soft. Yeah, sure. But but is that going to really cause that? I don't know. Yeah, I think it, it's going to be interesting. I, you know, I look back to, to 08 and 09 and we, we founded, you know, concierge. In fact, our first auction, ironically, was the same day of the Pollock sale, very same day. So, interesting that happened you know, and you had people in front of you with real money wanting to put it into something tangible right yeah we had a great auction and i think that the interesting thing was 0809 despite the backdrop we're getting excellent prices it was interesting and we didn't feel the pressure on prices until we got into 10 11 and 12 was kind of interesting where you know there was that lag and it'll be interesting to see this time if history repeats itself where you know coming out of this there's some pent-up demand 
there's people who want more space. And I think that I think for sure there's going to be activity. I think it's going to be a great time to be selling over the next quarter or two. The interesting thing about not only we know in our business, we only only sell high quality assets, but also our sellers are incredibly high quality, right? Most of our sellers do not have mortgage debt. Most of our sellers are very, you know, have ultra or very high net worth people. And they're coming to us because they want that same, you know, thing that the iBuyers deliver the regular homeowner, you know, the regular consumer, which is convenience and control. And what we also know about those sellers is oftentimes whether we get $10 million or $11 million for a property, 11 is of course better than 10 for everybody, but our sellers, their life goes on the same way the next day. The big thing, yeah, man, absolutely. And the big thing, it's not, it's, it's that the difference between the eye situation, the eye bar and, and where you're doing, you're quite right. You know, we're in the business of delivering control to a seller, right? Yeah. But, and that's what it does, that you are in control. And it's also delivering market price. And I think that the, the issue, so if I was a seller today, I agree with everything you say, if I was a seller today, I think what would be important to me is whatever route to market I choose, nobody knows what the new normal is going to be tomorrow. Sure. Just make sure that the current market price, be pragmatic, be open-minded, have good advice, make sure you've got the right broker on your case, but make sure that the current market price is being proved to you. And how do you do that? Right? There's lots of ways of doing it. Yorkshire is a fantastic way of doing it. Of course it is. But it's all about getting attention. You know, with so many competing assets and there are going to be, it's not just going to be real estate. You know, people are going to be trying to sell you pictures and you know, the value of oil is diminishing because of the way the world is changing. But, you know, over time, but there'd be lots of demands on your money if you want to spend it, right? Real estate is going to be one of them. How do you make yourself stand out? And I think you've got to listen to every option that there is for a sale. Listen, as I say, to the advice objectively. Do you know, it reminds me, I was in Tuscany last summer and I was speaking to a very reputable super agent and in a beautiful central Italy. It was a fantastic, lovely day and everything else. And I said to her, if I had five million euros in my pocket, what is there for sale? And, and she sort of thought for a moment and waved her hands out of the window, <laughs> window and said everything. <laughs> so, what, how, where do you start, right? If you're a seller, how do I get that buyer's attention? Because for sure there was more, you know, real estate sale that was fine. Yeah. But even for a buyer's perception, you know, how, where do you start, right? You, you, you come in for, and the buyers will be from, out of town right and so they're coming in how do you get an attention it is in one of the most glorious places in the world you know that you want to live i mean it really is glorious. but but it's that you know how do you get you know why should you come and visit my piece of real estate and not the guy next door the auction does make people pay attention you know when everything is for sale it's fine but the good thing about that auction thing is it's the definitive time you and i remember when the markets were so hot that you would say to a buyer, and everybody's a good real estate broker in a hot market, but you would say to the buyer in the morning, well, if you don't buy it this morning, I'm going to shirt somebody else this afternoon and they're going to buy it, right? That thankfully actually probably doesn't exist anymore, anywhere today. Most of the savvy buyers say, great, good luck, good luck yeah. with that. <laughs> good luck, yeah, call me tomorrow. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> it's like not true, okay? It's complete rubbish. So of course, with the auction, when you say it's going to be sold on the 31st of the month, so be under no illusion, it's not going to be for sale on the 1st. You know, it gets the attention. Right? Not might, might not be for you as a buyer. I fully appreciate that. There are other ways, you know, as opposed, but you know, sort of learning what we do in the auction environment, really. And I was thinking about this over the last sort of couple of weeks. You know, the auction's not for everybody. We do deal with the right people, and we have a very success rate of doing that. But it is not for everybody. Yeah. What I do think that, um, and how we can learn from the auction environment. I know we're going to touch on price reductions, but as opposed to, and why I think about price reductions, and I'm not a big fan of them, and I'll explain why, as opposed to just reducing the price, why, as a seller, I would have a very frank call with my agent, and I would authorise them to phone every buyer that they've got whose budget is maybe 50% of what I'm asking. I'm asking a million dollars. I want you to phone everybody that you've got who's said they've got 500,000 or more to spend and tell them about my property. You don't have to take the offer, right? Somebody comes on and says, wow, this is incredible. I'll give you 500,000 for it. You don't have to take the offer. That's not my point. The point is that you as a seller 
but then getting cast iron knowledge of where the buyers see value. That's what we do with the auction, right? In a six-week cycle, we prove where the market value is. And you never know what might transpire. You know, you and I have amazing times of some of our European auctions where you've just seen two people, the fear of loss is, you know, too too great for them and they, they don't want to lose out and they've got the financial willpower to, to compete with each other and pay astonishing yeah. prices. You just never know what might transpire if you do that, as opposed to just cutting your price, right? Why don't you just tell your broker, as I say, right now you phone everybody, let's get some traction, let's get some people through the door. They're the ones that every you're now the one that everybody's talking about as everybody's coming in. Who knows? But but you know, as I say, there's different ways of approaching things, I think, for sellers. And remember, there's more to an offer than just price, right? So you want to try and get it as contingent free as possible, which again, you know, I'll biggie up the auction, but that's kind of why we're here. That, that again, another good thing with the auction, right? There's no nonsense when that hammer comes down. What is your opinion of price reductions, you know, as a strategy? Yeah, well, the, the thing is about price reductions, if you think about it, and they are, there are fantastic agents in this world, I do understand that, I'm lucky enough to work with many of them, but when they value a piece of real estate, it's it, as educated as it may be, let's call it at the moment a guess, right? Because that's what it is, right? It's an educated guess. And it's Certainly as you go up the, the food chain on price. Of course, so you've got comparable evidence, you know where the market's going, you know, but it's a guess, right? So if you're too high, nobody comes, right? Absolutely pointless, right? Nothing is happening. We see this again with some of the people that we've helped across. I think of one particularly, but you know, the price was just pitched too high. Nobody comes, nothing. It's an utter waste of everybody's time. And if it's too sold to the first bidder, right? First buyer, <laughs> slip of the tongue, first buyer. So I put it on for a million. My agent says, yeah, it's worth a million euros. Thank you very much. So let's put it on for a million euros. That morning, somebody comes and says, great, I'll give you a million euros for it. Neither of those are great circumstances, are they really? He might be the best buyer. And I understand the best buyers are normally the ones that come through the door. And we've got the days on market index that would support that. And we're going to work to get that up to speed with Europe. But that... It, it, it's neither of those are really great sort of positions. So then you think, what are you going to do? Okay, I've got it on for a million dollars. So my agent says, well, let's knock uh, 10% off. Let's bring it down to 900,000. That's a big sum of money, right? 100,000. I mean, is that going to really deliver the traction? If it is considered, let's say and be frank, that when the list price was put on it as a guess, seems to be incorrect. So now we're going to have another guess. And we guess we'll be right. To me, that doesn't sound like a very good strategy for success. Right? Keep dropping the falling, you know, falling knife, whatever the expression is. Again, it's a sign of weakness. It is a sign of weakness. Buyers are savvy. And, you know, I'm not, you know, mad. I'm not sitting in my lockdown in English sunshine going slowly mad. But, you know, and I do understand what's going on in the world. And, you know, there will be a hard concentration of price. I'm sure that is going to come. But I think the, the strategies that are there for, for sellers in order to make themselves look attractive. And as I say, the auction is not for everybody, but just think about the other routes. Think about how you can get the attention. For sure, that's what it's all about. Certainly, you know, as you know, collectively we do business in, I don't know, 40 states, 29 countries. So we, we get around and we see a lot. You know, when you think about, there's the resort markets, the suburban markets, and the urban markets. The top tier resort markets, I think are going to perform well. Like right now in Aspen, you cannot get a rental, you know, and it's mud season, right? And it just tells you that people with money in private planes have gone to Aspen because it's a beautiful place to be and it's a safe place and all those things. And then I think suburban markets, if, if you if you have a job that requires you to, to work in a big city and, and you're not able to, you know, sustainably over the long term, you know, work remotely, being able to, to get out and have some elbow room and if this virus or something else rears its head again the notion of having room and space is is i think going to be really attractive so i think in certainly in north america markets are product that's been really difficult to sell in the last really 10 years because the trend's been urban and smaller and to your point experiences the connecticut's of the world greenwich's or fairfield county long island new jersey Pennsylvania, Chicago, where there's fabulous, you know, suburbs that have lots of great inventory, if you will, but it's been yeah. really out of vogue. In fact, same in all the markets that we've operated in, 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 in the EAMA region that we see. Yeah. For sure. Same trend, right? Now, the urban markets, 
it'll be interesting. You know, as as you know, I mean, we 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 certainly had our our a fair share of opportunities in in urban markets. I mean, we just sold a property in San Francisco at the Ritz Carlton on Market Street. In fact, I think it closed yesterday. But New York has been kind of a, a challenging market for us. One reason is I think it's a even though it's kind of a closed market where you know the brokers there's not MLS but there's Street Easy which is you know quasi de facto MLS in my opinion but nonetheless the market's more efficient there it's less of a guess when yeah. you're selling a condo but you know our pipeline in in Manhattan is through the roof I've never seen anything like it in the almost 12 years I've been doing this job and that's going to be really interesting to see both from the standpoint that in the ultra high end, the market is, I think, probably overbuilt, and it's been fueled by foreign buyers. Although, you know, the the U.S. Treasury kind of shut down the greatest money laundering loophole in the history of mankind in terms of, you know, anonymous LLCs paying cash for condos in New York and Miami. You know, that that's over, and that certainly had already hurt that market. But now, are foreigners going to want to? come by here? And that's a good question. Although I think, you know, perhaps there's going to be foreign capital that is interested. I mean, that's a big question mark. And, and just tell me, so do you think that spike with, that we're seeing in Manhattan is to do with the with the pandemic? I mean, has yeah. that exactly, you know, or do you think it was going, it was going? It was already happening. So the pipeline was already building, especially in, I mean, we had a seller that called recently with, you know, in one of the marquee new billionaire row buildings and you know 50 million dollar apartment that wasn't the first call we had like that you know we've got a list quite frankly of people that have that own things like that and where you know there's more supply coming online and the pool of demand was decreasing especially with once again you know some of the loopholes that have been closed around people buying the types of people buying things and where the money was coming from, et cetera. That was already happening. Certainly also we saw it to a certain extent in Miami with historically kind of, you know, the Brazilian and Venezuelan buyers out of the market. And so, and a surge in product. Now at the other end, um, I think we're seeing, you know, pressure on what I would characterize as more of affordable as a relative term, right? Our average sale the concierge is five and a half million. We really don't touch things under a million dollars, um, and but we're seeing a lot of, of 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 New York inventory in that million to five million dollar range that historically yeah. was pretty easy to sell, and yeah. and I think that's going to be a part of the market that may be really really hurting. As you say, we we've known each other a long time, and we've been you know on thirty years or something like that in real estate. Obviously, started very young, and and we know it's cyclical, right? You know, these things come and go, and they ebb and flow. And I think those, you know, if that's the trend at the moment, then you know it's going to be coming back, I'm sure, in different ways. And again, this is always the thing with the buyers and the conversations we had. I had this conversation with a buyer, relatively low value deal, but this was just a couple of weeks ago. We sat in the house, he wanted to buy the house, and you know, copy of the morning's newspaper under his arm. And he said, you know, well, the market's going to drop by 20 percent. And it's written in the newspaper. Let me show you. So I want 20 percent off. Right? I completely disagree with that fact. It's going to drop by 20 percent. But even if you're right, we're still not going to do it. Well, why on earth would you not? Because real estate is a long term play. Yeah. You're five and 10 years. Right. If you're in the market to make a quick buck on doing something else, there's a different discipline. We can have other conversations about making a quick turn in real estate. But you know, it's a five, seven, ten year play. You know, even if it and trying to sort of second guess where the market is, and particularly where you've got, you know, perhaps you want to go and buy yourself a holiday home somewhere on the beach or up a mountain or wherever it is, and because your kids want to enjoy it and everything else, and you prevaricate over making a decision, right? Kids get older and they don't want to come on holiday, but you know, that would be a terrible mistake because you're there trying to think about, you know, when is the bottom of the market. But even if you buy it today, even if it does drop. 5%, 10%, let's split the difference with you, drops 10%. You're going to be here, how old are you, I say? Well, you know, we're early 60s. Okay, do you think you're going to do another move? No, right, so you're going to be here for 20 plus years, right? So even if it drops, you know, that recovery, history would tell me that that recovery is going to come back in. So will you see people and buyers coming into, into, into Manhattan? There's a good job that they closed the money laundering <laughs> loopholes. We've done that in Europe a lot. But are you going to see these buyers coming in? Yeah, of course, of course you are. 
because those things will come around and it will become cyclical. Yeah. And the other thing, again, I had a quick check before I before I came out. I'm not sure about in the US, but you know, when you are a buyer, is it now the time to sort of take advantage and go out there? I would say it is the time to go and buy a piece of real estate. Of course, I would say that. I'm in the business of selling real estate. I think it is the right time to do that. If you're a bottom feeder, by the way, I would make sure you declare that. There's nothing worse for a broker than you're dealing with somebody who tries to justify why their offer at 50% of what's being asked is the right price and everything else and you should take my offer is that right. It might advice for a buyer. If you're in the market to get really cut price real estate, then make sure you tell your broker because because you'll build a better relationship with that and there will be an opportunity, yeah. right? As opposed to, you know, that guy always doesn't see any value and he always tries to buy things cheap, right? But the other thing, what I was going to say, so if you're buying that tangible, usable, fun, memory-creating and most notably leverageable asset, 10-year fixed money at just under 3% with a 50% loan to value. It's extraordinarily cheap, isn't it? You can yeah. fix it. 10 years below 3%, 50% loan to value. What, what is there not to like? So don't try and guess where the market might be a bit cheaper in two months' time or three months' time or a year's time. Act now, take advantage of the cheap cheap real estate, a long-term play, and get stuck in. That's what the real estate people say anyway. No, that's a good a good point. And I think here in a second we'll trans we have a ton of great questions coming in, so we'll go to that here in a second. But I agree with you about you know the long term you know view. We have a relationship with a you know top tier hedge fund who you know finance real estate projects all over the globe, and you know they have a really you know certainly a pragmatic point of view, but they're buyers today, you know, and because they have the staying power. And to your point, have the a balance sheet that they can leverage. And, you know, I think that certainly in many respects, you know, a lot of our buyers and our database, you know, fall into that category as well. So I think it's going to be a good time to buy and sell in the coming months. And I think there's we're going to be motivated sellers are going to be motivated buyers. And I think that's a you know fertile environment. And the long term, I think is going to be really good. I think the medium term might be a little choppy depending on, you know, what happens with jobs. That's the big question mark, you know, that I think none of us have an answer to. Yeah, it's quite, of course we don't. And again, I'm not not naive towards it. I think the big difference between, let's say, where life was in 2008, when there was an awful, also a lot of people losing their jobs, is that the world going into this was pretty well capitalized, I think, wasn't it? I mean, that's the the big difference. So, So there you know the support and everything else of course it will be very very tough for some people it's a it's a worry i do you know i, I get that myself but yes i agree choppy times it be very interesting working in it it's unprecedented i do get that even though i was trying to make assumptions from what has happened in the past but you know those were pretty pretty sort of events too the 2001 in new york 2007 in london yeah. and then in the world in 2008-9 yeah let's tackle some of these questions we've got a lot of them so let's let's go to there Thank you, Chad. Yes, we do. They're really great. And we're going to do our best to answer all of these live. First question, it looks like for you, Charlie, I would like to hear what you think the market will be like in hard hit areas like Northern Italy in the next one, three and five years. Northern Italy has been hard hit. You're quite right. By, and I suspect now when you look at the statistics, you know, Johns Hopkins does an extraordinary kind of update of what's going on with the pandemic. That there's a lot of other places that have caught up with it. So I'm not belittling what's happened to Northern Italy. Absolutely, it got it got thumped quite hard, but so too lots of other places. Has there been fundamental changes to that environment that will have a really detrimental effect on the real estate? I would argue not, because Northern Italy is one of the best locations in the world. It's really well accessible. You know, Milan is a fantastic city. I think Milan going into this pre-COVID, was undervalued against other important cities. The accessibility to, to when you live in somewhere like Milan or its environs is getting up to the mountains for the mountain life, getting out to the beaches and all those things. It's an accessible place to be, lots and lots of connections. So I think we will see some choppy time, I'm sure, as Chad says, and it will be just the same in, in, in Northern Italy over the course of the next year. If I had a million euros to spend on an investment property today, I promise you one of the places on my list would be Milan. I think it's an extraordinary place, which is why it was getting quite hot anyway prior to this. And it's one of the few markets, 
it's not overheated, be clear about that, for some of the markets we see. If you've got that five-year view on Italian real estate, I would say now would be the time to do it. Our Italian auctions over the last couple of years, Charlie, you know, it's been interesting how many Asian and American buyers we've seen interested in participating and buying. You know, it is not, perhaps I'm, as I'm secretly pining to be Italian, but it's the most glorious country. I mean, it, you know, France as well. I mean, there are glorious, glorious places. It's got fantastic culture. Every other building is an historic monument. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful place to be. The Italians are wonderful people. You know, the food isn't gonna, what's not to like? Those things aren't gonna change with, with, with COVID. So when the pandemic is over, so I think you will see a rise in real estate prices exacerbate to, to five years from today. I think we have a few things coming up this summer too in Italy. Let's go to another one. Do you think premium real estate will increase, in particular maybe the size of property and what buyers and sellers are looking for? I think for sure spaces, I think there's a, a, a top tier compass agent in San Diego, Seth O'Byrne, who talks about spaces, the new luxury. And I think that's for sure, there's no doubt. I mean, I think all the whole world's been, you know, confined to their homes and, you know, bigger's not always better, but I would say over the last six weeks, bigger's probably been better, right? In terms of having room to, to live and breathe. And so I think no doubt, I think that's going to be something that we're going to see. Like I said, certainly in the US, the blue chip second home markets, you know, whether it's the Aspens or Jackson Holes or Palm Beaches or the West Coast of Florida, you know, there are pockets where they're nice places to be. And people, I think, also have figured out, at least affluent people, how they can efficiently run their businesses in a way that maybe wasn't something they thought was possible. You're seeing it already. You saw Carl Icahn moving, you know, to Miami you know, last year moving his firm there and, and because he was tired of paying New York taxes and and wanted to live in some nice weather. Um, but I could, you know, also see a lot of our clientele in, you know, unique, interesting businesses, you know, running it from their home office in Aspen kind of sounds appealing. You've got, you know, the, the sort of clues in the question again there as well, that it was premium real estate. So yeah, premium things, premiums for a reason rarity, uh, scale, whatever it might be, they, they demand premiums. It, is the current pandemic going to change and alter that? It, I, I can't see an argument why you would say it would, because every other moment of adversity that I've been involved in real estate in the last 30 has shown it to be something different. And speaking of the pandemic, another question that came in, this one's for you, Chad. Since the beginning of the pandemic, have you seen an increase in inquiries from potential sellers? And so, do you believe this potential increase in auction properties will lay pricing in a downward direction? It's interesting. We've had a, a dramatic increase in both buyers and sellers coming to us. And I think, you know, we've had, in fact, over the last month, the highest traffic to our website ever. And so I think what you're seeing is, you know, buyers are looking for opportunities and our platform is all about opportunities. Our database, you know, we have 600,000 people in our database, 100,000 weekly subscribers, 10,000 members of our client, private client list, 275 billionaires. And the common denominator of the buyers in our database is they like real estate, just intrinsically it's something they appreciate and like. They have capital, they have money, and they're opportunistic people. They instinctively right now are saying there's going to be opportunities and concierge spotlights the best opportunities. So, you know, I'm going to go there. I think on the flip side, sellers are coming to us. I think all of us have realized in this pandemic that, you know, life's short. Probably all knew that, but it's really short. And, you know, spending a thousand days on the market to sell your luxury property is just it's maddening to people and it's expensive and i think that sellers are coming to us knowing that it takes six weeks approximately to go to to sold and i think that's really going to be you know we're going to see that one of the things i mean the auction process brings the market what's the share of disney trading at today versus you know pre-pandemic you know when you were a buyer or seller of that stock you paid the market price that day and, and the same thing on our process, we get market prices for the assets that we bring. And it's proof, you know, what something's worth that given day. We have kind of a, a, a neutral point of view on price. It's like, yeah, it, you know, it's about bringing buyers and sellers together 
to conduct a transaction at a market price. Now, that said, is there going to be some downward pressure on price? I think it comes back to jobs. The same thing I said earlier, which is in the near term, the sellers are people who have plenty of equity and they want to sell and maybe they take a little less, maybe they take a little bit more than they were going to get six months ago. Right? It doesn't matter to them. I think the, the question mark is going to be if there are forced sellers that come into the market, people who you know had jobs that just don't come back. Um, you know, I think that's going to be the that's going to be the question mark in terms of or the driver of downward pressure on price. And I mean, and that's certainly a question we'll find out. It's interesting. You look at the Warren Buffetts of the world. He had his annual conference last week via video and, you know, they're not buying anything. And usually they buy a lot of things in, in environments like this. Now, I think part of that is the Federal Reserve stepped in and backstopped you know, bond markets, corporate debt, areas where in the past they didn't backstop things like that. And the Warren Buffetts of the world were there to, to, to take advantage of that. And so I think that's the reason why you didn't see, you know, see them do things in the short term, but interestingly enough that, you know, they're just not seeing good deals. So they're not buying, you know, and, and maybe they're just hanging on to their dry powder and waiting for whatever the reset's going to be. Now, maybe there's not going to be a reset, right? That I don't know in terms of what happens with jobs. I'm concerned about it. I mean, it's hard to see a V shaped recovery. I think we should be hoping for a U shaped one and, and there's a chance it's an L. And and so that's the reason why I say the medium term scares me a little bit. The short term, I'm bullish. The long term, for all the reasons Charlie pointed out, I'm bullish. I think the medium term is going to be um, a little bit more of a question mark, whether it's a buyer where you have lenders that you know tighten the spigots. Therefore, the, there might be cheap money there, but the, you know, the average person can't get it. You know, so I think that's going to be, you know, Medium term is the thing for all of us to be really paying attention to. Yep. So, Charlie, we have one for you, and it is asking about Spain. So, in particular, what's your view on the property market in the Gleason region of Alicante, particularly larger real estate in the upper values, for example, between three to E5 million? How do you find valuations in the region when Spain has a very basic simplistic valuation model, which has been laid out by the government. Have you found this hmm. perhaps having influence or impact on pricing? Yeah, it's not. That's a, again, excellent question. It's, it, it is a, an issue that we come across in many markets. It's not just exclusive to, to, to Spain, right? Many of these places, um, the real estate um, conveyance of real estate is controlled by a notarial system and there, there's no communication between them. I think Spain, and it comes back to putting yourself in the position of a buyer. Let's take Marbella for a moment. Generally, the market over the course of the last five years or so has been soft. Been soft for a number of reasons. There's been the early 1970s, if you wanted to have a fantastic Mediterranean beach location, Marbella was probably one of only a few places that you would go to. Now the whole of the Mediterranean has opened up. There's lots of places where you can go and, and, and be on the net. So there's lots of competition. But just that's just one reason. But Marbella still retains a very strong following because you have the physical geography of the big mountain behind you, as you probably the person asking the question knows that it can be raining in Gibraltar and it could be raining in Malaga, but it it it, it could be sunny in Marbella because of the physical geography. That's what drew, drew people there to begin with. So a beach house in uh, Marbella, a house that is uh, a good quality house on a good quality plot that's not compromised in a good development that's accessible to why you want to be there. And by that, I mean, you've got to be close to the coast is going to perform very well. In my personal opinion, I have seen some real estate opportunities for houses that are uh, in southern Spain, but perhaps they're just a little bit too far north, a little bit too far from the coast. Maybe they're an hour from the coast trying to sort of compete with beachfront yeah. prices. It doesn't make them unsaleable. Of course it doesn't. 
for, for, for every 10 people that want to be on the beach in, in, in Marbella, there might be somebody who could think that was the most ghastly thing ever and they would love to have a, you know, a beautiful finger inland in Spain. But, but there's less of a market for it. So from our perspective, how we would go about it, it doesn't matter what the market is. So we would do the same, that when we have an auction opportunity, and I'll talk about auction now, or even if you're a real estate broker, right, comes back to my point before that you want to have the market as a seller, you need to have the market prove to you to understand where the market's at. Something is worth what somebody's prepared to pay for it. Not the first person that walks through the door, but I want to run a campaign. Let's say with my auction hat on, I want to have a campaign. I want to guarantee, I want to get you to get me 500 inquiries. I want to get 25 people to come and have a look at it. And then I want to have three or four people competing to buy it. Do I know when the hammer comes down that that price is the market price? Absolutely, I do. It's not where the price might have been six months ago, where it might be in a year's time. That's an irrelevance. I want to know what the market is today. And, and actually, Alicante is a, is a good one in that region. Malaga is an important airport. It's a big, uh, 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 good size, well-serviced airport. If there is going to be some real pain in some places, perhaps there are some destinations that have risen up on the back of the low-cost airline airlift. You wonder what's going to happen with those guys, whether they're going to be in business coming out of the back of this. Yeah. Or for other reasons as well. I mean, it's the whole environmental reason that, you know, they're under pressure to begin with. Alicante and Malaga is served as a, as a major airport, so international airport. So I think you'll find that Alicante on the beach, that whole Andalusia region, all the good developments, the Zagaletas and the Soto Grandes and those sort of things, I think will prove themselves to be really worthy and keep their value. I think those the, the, the other overdevelopment in places, uh, you know, maybe those might struggle a little bit more. Awesome insight, Charlie. Maybe we'll let you back on one of these again. Well, <laughs> I hope, you know, I'm, I tell you what, I'm a rubbish politician probably, but but we probably, you know, should come back in 12 months or nine months or something and just see, you know, and I'd love to, you know, talk to the person that raised the question in Italy and the person that raised the question in southern Spain. Interesting to see how that how that pans out. But I really do sincerely believe that those have got some, some real term value. Yep. So I think we have time for one more question to close it out. And again, any we didn't get to, we will definitely follow up with each of you individually. So for both Chad and Charlie, if each of you had one to five million to invest with the goal of capital preservation, which location in Europe or North America would you invest in? Capital preservation? I'll go first. And, it, and again, cracking question. I, I would um, gravitate towards um, uh, accessibility. I remember somebody once, again, on Sotheby's days, gave me a great presentation about Pernambuco in northeast Brazil. And it looked wonderful, right? I mean, it looked absolutely glorious and with no respect. But, but from Europe, it was an unbelievably difficult destination to get to because there was no flights, direct flights from the UK anyway to Recife. I think maybe there was one from Portugal. But it was a really difficult place to get to. And you think, you know, it's it's very cheap and accessible, you know, and, and on, on a price point for a very good reason. So if it was capital preservation, why I've got the vision of I want to buy something because in five years I know I've got a good asset. I would gravitate, I would gravitate towards where I know that there is the, the airlift. I would where there is everything that interests me. So I would like to be closer to a city, but I like to close enough to be other amenities. So uh, as, as lovely as, as Manchester might be, that wouldn't be a city I would choose. I would choose a city where there is a diverse geography. So I would go to Barcelona, I would go to Milan, I would think of possibly Paris just because it's the most glorious city, but I would think I would be rather more sort of minded to go to the Toulouse in France or something like that. You know, it's a fantastically undervalued place, I think. Um, Athens, I think, is undervalued. You know, those sorts of cities that you know are always going to be accessible because they're very, very important. The culture and the theatres and the restaurants and the, everything else about it, which is not going to change. They might be slightly different coming out the back of this. I do understand it. But, you know, of course, there's going to be bars and restaurants and everything else is going to be open and operational. So I choose those major cities 
I wouldn't choose Madrid, as nice a place as it is. It's in some ways a little bit cut off. You know, places like, as I say, Barcelona and Milan, Athens, probably along that line, maybe Rome. I think Rome's quite expensive though now, but you know, those sorts of cities, I would consider that would be, and I would be right in the city. I would take something in the, with a bit of elbow room to be outside because there'll always be you know, a market for those. That would be my job. Charlie got to go first, had a chance to think about it, but I think, you know, I would focus on, you know, certain all climate. So that doesn't mean necessarily warm, but I also think not frigid. So warm climates or temperate climates where if we're in another, you know, lockdown that you can get outside and breathe. And so I think that is going to be important. Think of places like some of the mountain markets, as I've mentioned earlier, some of the coastal markets. And, and I also where and as it relates to capital preservation, places where it's hard to build new product, places like Santa Barbara, they're not making any more real estate there. They're not letting high rises proliferate. So there's scarcity of inventory. It's a beautiful climate. You can get outside and breathe, not locked into an elevator with tons of other people. So I think single family, places where the climate is not too extreme, one way or the other, places where inventory is low and constrained because of either geographic constraints or public policy constraints, like a Boulder, Colorado, where it's very difficult to increase density. I think those are the things that I would be, be looking for and I would be leery of places where they can you know, build as far as the eye can see. That's what I would say. Yeah, it's a good point about that. You know, There are some places that we come across where you're the latest development Places in Europe that are like, right, and in Berlin, I think it suffered a bit from this, that they just could carry on building. You know, and they were yeah. those controls. You know, some of the other markets, the Dubai market, I've got a few good friends in Dubai, and, you know, gave a fantastic place to be and all of those other things. But the downward pressure on pricing there, there's nothing changed about the destination, right? You can still get to it, and it's got all the infrastructure, and there's everything there. But they just keep building inventory. It just grows and grows and grows. And then in a big resort um, on the north uh, west coast of Saudi Arabia, that you know it's a huge five trillion dollar investment or whatever it is to build a new Dubai-like sort of place. It's just going to exacerbate that, that that sort of a massive amount of oversupply. We are coming up on time. We'd like to thank all the attendees for joining today's webcast, which will be edited as a podcast for future listening and sharing beginning next week and syndicated across Spotify. Apple Podcast, iTunes, and directly on our website, blocktalknow.com. You can also visit conchiersauctions.com to find out more about our auction process and see all properties heading to the block. Thanks again for joining, and we hope to have you on again next week. Yeah, listen, guys, thank you so much. And I, I know there's been a, a sort of proliferation of webcasts going on at the moment. I've listened to a lot and enjoyed them greatly, but it's fantastic to be able to just get our our, our, our opinions across. So, you know, listen, I hope it was interesting. I certainly enjoyed it very much. Thanks for the opportunity. Cheers, Charlie. See you soon, Crystal. Thank you so much and, and look forward to seeing everybody soon.